Well, again, I'm so thankful that not only we have you in the room here, but also uh, those that are in the pavilion, and uh, I'm grateful that they've chosen to come and to uh, brave the heat, but to be out there, that was a great service last week, and thankful we're able to continue uh, to do that. But no matter whether you're in this room or in the pavilion, take your Bible if you have it. Open it up to the next Psalm, Psalm 36. Psalm 36. If you have a copy of God's Word or some way to look at the Bible, uh, I would encourage you to do that. I want us to be able to see these verses together as David paints for us an incredible picture of a life of someone without Christ contrasted to the life of someone with Christ. I believe without question, uh, there are some of you here this morning that God has brought here for a very specific reason because you need this Word from God. I was reading a couple of weeks ago, a man by the name of Eugene Peterson, probably my favorite author, and in his book on the Psalms, he wrote this. Listen to these words carefully. They might be a little more unusual than something you might have thought. He says this, there is a general assumption prevalent in the world that it is extremely difficult to be a Christian, but this is as far from the truth as the East is from the West. The easiest thing in the world is to be a Christian. What is hard is to be a sinner. Being a Christian is what we were created for. In the course of Christian discipleship, we discover that without Christ, we are doing it the hard way, and that with Christ, we are doing it the easy way. It is not Christians who have it hard, but non-Christians. You say, well, Pastor, I've always been told that being a Christian is, is hard. Isn't that true, that it's hard to be a Christian? Well, I would begin by saying this. It's just hard to be a human. Now, I don't have anything to compare that to. I've never been anything but a human. But I do know from being a human that it's hard. It's just hard to live life in a broken world. We live in a broken world where sin and suffering and betrayal and hurt, death, all exist. Twice this week, I received text messages Uh, from people in our church who are suffering in incredible ways. Both times, I immediately dropped to my knees and began to pray that the God of comfort would comfort them, would bring resolution to their situation. Uh, Constantly, every week, I'm receiving more stories of people who are experiencing what it is to live in a broken world. And as Christians, we're not immune to that. We live in a broken world, and so we suffer. But the hardest thing in the world is trying to navigate a broken world without the one who can put it back together. The most difficult thing is to try to live this life in a broken world without Jesus Christ. Now certainly when we come to know Jesus Christ, we engage in this battle with the flesh, the world, and the devil. We know that coming to follow Jesus might give us some a little bit of persecution or some pressure from different people in different places, but the reality is it is still always more difficult to navigate this life without Jesus than it is to navigate life with Jesus. You heard me say it before, following Jesus is the best of all possible lives in this broken world. It is more difficult to walk through this world without Jesus Christ. And that's really what David wants us to understand in Psalm 36. David paints for us two different realities, two contrasting realities. In a very clear picture, he shows us, first of all, the sad reality of those who ignore God in verses one through four. The sad reality of those who ignore God. So he paints this picture of those who have ignored God. And then he follows that in verses five through eight with a picture of the satisfying reality of God himself. So the sad reality of those who ignore God and then the satisfying reality of God himself. And he contrasts these two. He wants us to see this. 
He wants us to see a real picture of life without God, and then he wants to see a real picture of life with God. And he wants us to come to understand in our own hearts what Eugene Peterson said is that life is always better with following Jesus. But what David is doing is not only giving us a picture of these two ways to live, he is also in the midst of that showing his own desire to experience the fullness of everything God has to offer him. So after showing us this picture of a satisfying God who is inviting us to come and to experience a satisfaction that only he can provide for us because as we read a moment ago, this is the way life was meant to be lived. David then ends this Psalm with a cry of his heart saying, God, what I long for more than anything is to experience the fullness of everything you have to offer. I want to get in on everything that you have. I wanna be satisfied in you. So let's look at that together. Turn to Psalm 36 and look as I read these words for us. Transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There is no fear of God before his eyes. For he flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. He plots trouble while on his bed and he sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. Now here's the transition, another contrast. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness extends to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is the steadfast love, O God. The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house and you give them drink from the river of your delight. For with you is the fountain of life and in your light do we see light. And here's the cry of David's heart. Oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteousness to the upright of heart. Let not the foot of arrogance come upon me nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoers lie fallen. They are thrust down and unable to rise. You might have noticed those two contrasting realities, one in verses one through four and the other in verses five through nine. And then David's cry of his heart. Let's look at those together. The first reality in verses one, four is this. David wants us to see the sad reality of those who ignore God. Write that down, the sad reality of those who ignore God. This is the picture that he paints. It's life without God. It's life ignoring God. It's life, even if you believe in God, living as if God doesn't exist. It says transgression speaks to the wicked deep in their heart. Transgression is a word that simply means rebellion. It's a military word of a soldier who's rebelled against his commanding officer. And it's kind of the uh, biblical way that we say that we have rebelled against God. And all of us, the Bible says, have rebelled against God. Every one of us, naturally born away from God, have taken our puny little fist and shaken it in the hand of God and said in some way or another, God, I don't want you to be the Lord of my life. I don't wanna follow you. I don't care what you say. That's transgression. It's rebellion. And it says here that that kind of rebellion speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. Now that word heart matters. I would encourage you to circle that or to underline that because it reminds us that the problem that faces us is not an external problem, it's an internal problem. Therefore, the solution for our lives is never an external solution, it is an internal solution. When we watch what's going on in the world around us and we see all of destruction, all of the anger, all of the hate, 
all of the rebellion against governing authorities, what is it? Well, it's an internal problem. The problem is not external, it's internal, that there is wickedness, rebellion in the hearts of those who we see doing those things. Therefore, listen to this, the solution is never external. The solution is no government, no political scheme, none of those things will ever solve the problem that we see on the media and the news because the problem is internal and it needs an internal solution. We cannot try to fix internal problems with external solutions. And so he reminds us that the problem with the wicked is an internal problem. It is a heart problem. And this is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We talk about the gospel as being good news. And the reason it's good news is because it's God changing us from the inside out. If you've ever found something in your life that you long to change, and apart from the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you've tried to change it, you've tried to be better, you've tried to do better, You've just woken up in the morning and say, okay, this is the day I'm gonna make the turn. I'm gonna do better, I'm gonna be better. And you've always failed. It's the reason is because it's been an external solution to an internal problem. You see, the Bible has this little theological word that's important for you to know. It's called regeneration. Regeneration. Regeneration is the work of the Holy Spirit by which God wakes up our dead heart and soul. It's a work that only God can do. And the first thing that God does in our hearts is he brings regeneration. It's important because Ephesians 2 says, listen, you were born spiritually dead. Not asleep, not tired, you were born dead. Which means when you were brought to life, you had a physical life and a spiritual life. The physical life was alive, the spiritual life was dead. Ezekiel 36 says it this way. You have spiritually a heart of stone. Now, how much life comes out of a heart of stone? If you took out your heart and replaced it with a stone, I'm fairly confident there would be very little life that was going on there. So the picture of you spiritually is that you were born with this heart that doesn't work. It's a stone, it's hardened. But what God does in John 3 is he says you must be born again. What does that mean? Well, it means that you must have a physical life and a spiritual life. So through the process of regeneration, God takes your dead, hard, cold heart and brings it to life. And the only reason you have any desire for God, the only reason you have any hunger or thirst for God is because the first thing God did is he gave you a desire for him by giving you a new heart. You must be born again. This is why we read Ephesians 2 at the beginning to say even while we were dead, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. So the way in which God changes us by the power of the gospel, listen, is from the inside out. He gives us a new heart. And all of a sudden we get new desires and new longings and very slowly, let me remind you, we begin to change from the inside out. Anyone that says, well, I came to Christ and everything immediately changed is lying. Because what happens is we come to Christ, God puts his spirit inside of us, all of a sudden our desires and our longings are new and we start this long process throughout our life trying to look a little bit more like Jesus day after day after day. There's something massive that happens inside of us. Second Corinthians five seventeen. if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. That's true. You become a new creation inside. It just takes a while for what's inside to come outside. But I'm just telling you, the only hope we have is for something to happen inside and then it to change us outside because there's no way you can change outside and it affect the inside. 
It says that transgression speaks to them in their heart. Look what it says next. There is no fear of God before his eyes. So there is a heart problem. And then it says there's no fear of God before their eyes. That means they, they don't honor God. They're not worried about standing before God. Have you ever known someone that walked in sin in such a way and there was no thought in their mind that someday they're gonna have to stand before a holy God and give an account for their life? They just act as if God doesn't matter, that there will be no account. Do you know that that feeling you experience when you're going down the road and you're exceeding the speed limit and you see a police officer up to your right and as soon as you see them, all of a sudden your heart begins to sink because you know that you broke the law and you know they were seen. You know that feeling? I don't. I've never experienced that in my life, but... I've had people report to me that that's a miserable, miserable feeling. That's a terrible feeling, why? Because you know you were doing something wrong and you know you got caught. Listen, the people that don't walk with the Lord don't have that feeling when they think about God. They just go about their life, they they do what they do with no thought, no sinking feeling that one day they're going to stand before God and have to give an account for everything they have done. They're not thinking about standing before God. Look what it says in verse three. It says, the wicked man flatters himself with his own eyes. I love that. It means he commends himself. He praises himself. He makes himself think he's doing better than he is. And he thinks, verse two, that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Well, no one's gonna find out what I do in the, in the secret places. I'm never gonna be caught. And even if I am, there will not be real consequences. I know the Bible says you're gonna reap what you sow. I don't, I know, I don't think that's going to happen. He flatters himself with his own eyes. Now listen to this. It's always easy to find somebody worse than you are, isn't it? Even if you're just feeling terrible about yourself, just watch the news tonight. You will find somebody worse than you are. You say, well, well, that guy got mad at his neighbor and burned down his house. I'm not that bad. You're right. You can always find somebody worse than you are. And what we tend to do is make ourselves feel better by looking at someone who's doing worse. And this is what they're doing. They're saying, I'm flattering myself. I'm commending myself. I'm praising myself. I lay in bed and think, well, I'm not that bad or I'm not as bad as she is or I'm not as bad as he is. Look what it says in verse three. The words of his mouth are trouble and deceit. He has ceased to act wisely and do good. Remember, there's only two ways to live, the way of wisdom, the way of folly. Colossians 1 says Jesus is the fullness of wisdom. Therefore, to reject Jesus is to reject wisdom, is to choose to walk the path of folly. And so it says in verse four, he plots trouble while on his bed. He sets himself in a way that is not good. He does not reject evil. He sets himself in a way that is not good. You can say it a thousand different ways, but there's only two ways to live, the way of Christ, the way of self, the way of righteousness, the way of wickedness. Here's someone who said, I've chosen to reject the way of righteousness, the way of Christ, and I'm walking my own way. David says in the Psalms, he has chosen a way that is not good. David paints a picture of someone who's just ignoring God. It's not even that they're markedly evil where you notice them and say, that that man has evil in his eyes. No, it's a heart condition. They're ignoring God. They're rebelling against God. They are ignoring wisdom. They're exalting themselves. They're arrogant and they're self-centered. It is a picture of the wicked, of those who have ignored God. And what David wants you to see is this, is that the life of one who ignores God has a sad and a small life. 
It's sad because it's rejecting what is good. It's sad because it doesn't find life. It's sad because it doesn't find light. It's sad because they have heard the invitation of Jesus to walk in the way of wisdom, but they have ignored that way and instead chosen to walk in the way of foolishness. And not only are they choosing that way, they're choosing that destination. It is a sad thing to walk through life without Christ. It is also a small life. You say, why? Well, because it's self-consumed. How small of a life is it to live when all you think about is yourself and pleasing yourself and you're not living for anything bigger than yourself? David wants us to see in these four verses, this is a sad and a small life of someone who ignores the Lord. And you say, well, Pastor Josh, I get it. I mean, I know what you're saying, but I've got a lot of lost friends and they're not laying in bed at night plotting evil. Okay, Uh, they're good people, they volunteer, they do what's right, they love social causes. I'm telling you, Pastor Josh, I know a lot of lost people who are good people. Well, let me just say this as kindly and sensitively as I can. No, you don't. You don't know anybody like that. You also don't know any saved people who are like that. Because according to Ephesians 2, all of us are born dead and disobedient and doomed. According to Romans 3, there is none of us who seek after God. There is none of us who have done good. As a matter of fact, twice Ephesians 2 talks to the church and says, you, like the rest of mankind, were walking in perversion and in the way of the flesh and the lust of the flesh. All of us were like this. The truth is, there's no one like this. All of us have wickedness in our hearts. Even the best person in this room has thoughts that would make a mob boss blush. All of us have this. Now, it could be that you got invited to church this morning and you're in this room or you're out in the pavilion and you think, uh, listen, this is exactly what I expected from a Baptist church. I knew that I was gonna come in here and what I was gonna hear is this, we're fantastic and all the rest of you are a bunch of idiots. We know that every one of you that's not a Christian is a terrorist. We know that. It told us right here. We do know that you lay in bed and plot evil in your heart and you're thinking, this is great. I was hoping I would hear this because it just allows me to confirm what I thought. You all think you're so great. Let me answer that. We don't think we're so great. We think every single one of us deserve to go to hell. We believe there is a literal hell where the wrath of God is poured out for all of eternity, a literal place with literal fire, and we believe that every single one of us deserves to go there because every single one of us was born dead in our sins. Every single one of us has sinned beyond measure. The only difference is this, is when that moment of regeneration happens, the first thing that happens is God convicts you of your sin. And when you get sorry for your sin and you see a need for your savior, you run to Jesus and you acknowledge that you are a terrible sinner that deserves to go to hell and you call on a savior to save you. So what we're doing is not boasting in our goodness, we are boasting in the greatness of Jesus Christ. That's that's what we're doing. We're not saying we're better than you. We're saying we're just like you. The only difference is we have called upon the name of the Lord and the only goodness we have in us at all is goodness that has been given to us, not earned by us. That's why Ephesians 2 says, so that no one can boast. Listen, I can't boast about it. If I do anything good, it's by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ because I have no good in myself. And so that's exactly what David's about to do. David's painting this picture of this sad, small life of someone who rejects God, and it's true. A dangerous life of ignoring God. 
But instead of next, contrasting that by saying, now look at the righteous, they're incredible. He doesn't do that. What he does, he says, now now look at God and how incredible he is. So there's this sad reality of those who ignore God. And the next part is the satisfying reality of God himself. That's verses five through eight. The satisfying reality of God himself. It says, your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. So a couple of things happening there. There's these four characteristics of God, steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, judgment. And then it compares them to four different things. Heavens, clouds, mountains, and the great deep. The steadfast love of the Lord, that is God's covenant love. It is his never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. And what David is saying is the love of God extends to the heavens, meaning for you to try to grasp the love of God is like looking up at the heavens and trying to grasp the heavens. You cannot physically, you cannot mentally grasp the love of God. You cannot extend to the end of the love of God. It goes on forever and ever and ever. And in the same way you've had that feeling where you've looked up the sky and you've been frustrated by your inability to think about where it ends, so it is. If you were to take the time to reflect upon the love of God, you would have the exact same feeling because it never ends. There is no end to the love of God. There is nothing you can do to take you beyond what God is able to love. The love of God extends to the heavens, but look at what it says Next, it says your faithfulness to the clouds, your, your promises, your reliability, your dependability, the consistency of God, the faithfulness of God. You say, well, that's like grabbing onto the clouds. You try to grab them, but you, you can't hold on to them. He says, that's what it's like to try to comprehend the faithfulness of God. It is beyond anything that we could imagine. Look what it says next. It says your righteousness, meaning your perfection, It's like the great mountains and your judgment, your justice and your fairness. It is like the great deep. So it's it's saying, I want you to, to reflect upon the love, the fairness, the goodness, the kindness, the grace of God. I want you to see that. So we just saw this picture of a small self-consumed life that is running from God and ignoring God. On the other side, I want you to see a picture of a magnificent God. And I want you to compare it to the clouds, the mountains, and the great deep, meaning this. We have an inexhaustible God. His love is inexhaustible. His grace is inexhaustible. His judgments, his faithfulness, his righteousness are inexhaustible. You cannot ever come to the end of them. But what's more amazing than that is that this inexhaustible God is inviting us to come and to feast upon him. So so verses five and six are saying God is inexhaustible in his love and his goodness, but look at verses seven, eight, and nine. How precious is your steadfast love, O God. So he says, we know the steadfast love of God, but it's, it's precious to me. Now, why would the steadfast love of God be precious to David? So if you see someone else who has an incredible love story, That may be great to watch, but it's not precious to you because it's not personal to you. What you long for is your own precious love story. If it's personal, it becomes precious. So what David is saying is this, I know the inexhaustible value of your love, but what's amazing to me is it's precious to me because it's personal, I've tasted it, I've experienced, I know of your love. Then look what it says, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. So so here's the distinction every week when I get up to preach. 
I tell you about God's faithfulness. I tell you about his goodness. I tell you about his kindness. It's one thing for you mentally to go there. It's another thing for you to take every pain and every heartache and every struggle and every disappointment and run to the Lord and find refuge in him to the extent that those things I told you are true become true of you. You realize that that's the deal here, right? Because I'm gonna get up every week and I'm gonna tell you the greatness of God. The question is, will you believe it and will you run and find refuge in him? This is what he's saying. He's saying, we find refuge, we run to you and we find protection and love and care under the shadow of the faithfulness of God. And then it says this, verse eight is my favorite verse. Look at this, I love this verse. They feast on the abundance of your house. There is abundance with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a never ending supply. And what he's saying is this, we're feasting from the abundance. We're eating and eating and eating and there's never an end to the abundance of the Lord. We're continuing to feast and what else are we doing? We're drinking from the rivers of your delights. Psalm 1611 says this. It says, in the presence of God is fullness of joy. On your right hand are pleasures forever. Every bit of joy, every bit of pleasure is found in the Lord. There is no joy outside of the Lord. There is no true lasting pleasure outside of the Lord. Here's what David says. I believe that to be true and I'm drinking from the pleasures of the Lord. I am feasting upon the delights of the Lord. I am going to make sure that I am consuming as much as I can of the pleasure of the Lord. I love the idea of drinking from the rivers of delight. It reminds me of John 7, when Jesus stands up at the last day of the feast at the temple in front of everyone, and he says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And out of him will flow rivers of living water. What I love about that is that every one of us is thirsty for something. We're all longing for something. What Jesus is saying is this, the deepest longing of your heart is a longing that only Jesus himself can satisfy and he will not only satisfy it, he will fill you up to overflowing with the joy of his delights. So so what's happening here in verses five and six is it's saying, here's the vastness of God. He is inexhaustible. And then in the next three verses, he's saying this, and he's inviting you to feast upon how inexhaustible he actually is. As C.S. Lewis says, God is the all-satisfying object of life. God is all-satisfying. And the point that David wants us to see when we come to the end of verse nine is this, is there is inexhaustible satisfaction found in an inexhaustible God. There is inexhaustible satisfaction found in an inexhaustible God. Do you know this is what's so great about heaven? I was talking with my uh, discipleship group last week. There's uh, four guys and me, and we had something to come up in our reading about heaven, and so we started talking about the normal heaven questions. You know, will my dog be in heaven, and will we be married in heaven? All the really important ones. And so we were just thinking about all the deep things about heaven. But you know one of the things that people miss about heaven? God is, in, I want you to think about this. God is inexhaustible. There's no end. There's no end to his love. There's no end to his goodness. There's no end to his satisfaction. Inexhaustible. And what that means is the moment that we come to know Jesus Christ, John 17, it says this is eternal life that you know him. So when we come to know God, we get a little taste of his goodness and joy. And then we spend time with the Lord and we get more of it and we get more of it. And by the way, it's very addictive. Once you start getting some of Jesus, you want more and you want more and you want more. And then you get to heaven and you get the fullness of it and you think, oh my word, I could never get more than this. This is life as it was meant to be and you're just full. And you know what? You get up the next day and there's more. 
And the next day there's more, and the next day there's more. And every single day throughout all of eternity, you will get more joy and more grace and more peace and more goodness. Why? Because there's an inexhaustible supply in God. That's why heaven is heaven. Because an inexhaustible God is there offering you inexhaustible love and joy. And it begins right now when you come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, the inexhaustible God is offering you inexhaustible pleasure that begins the moment you come to him. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I think if you were honest, you may not describe last week with God as inexhaustible pleasure. You may not describe last week with God as feasting upon his delights of drinking from his pleasures. If I were to say, describe your last week with Jesus, that might not be the phrases that come out. I wanna encourage you by letting you know this. David felt the same struggle. You see, David knew what was true, which I think most of us know this, and many of us believe it. Yes, I believe that's true, but I want it to be a reality in my life. I I don't wanna just know it, I wanna experience it. And that's exactly how he ends. Look at verse 10. He ends with this longing to be satisfied. He says, oh, continue your steadfast love to those who know you and your righteous to the upright at heart. So what he does is he takes the truth of verse five and he turns it into a prayer in verse 10. The truth in verse five is this. God, your love extends to the heavens. It's inexhaustible. But God, I'm asking in verse 10 that I might continue to experience that. I don't want to just know it in my head. I want to know it in my heart. I am longing to feast and to drink from the rivers of your delight. A.W. Tozer says, we have as much of God as we want. Meaning that what God does in your heart is he begins by giving you just a little hunger for God. And if you'll start to feast upon the Lord, then he's gonna give you more hunger and more hunger and more hunger. And the more you feast upon him, the more you find satisfaction in him, the more he gives you of himself. And so God is saying, I'm inexhaustible. The problem is not that I'm in, not inexhaustible. The problem is not that I'm unacceptable. I, I'm there, you can come and get me. I'm offering myself to you. An inexhaustible God is giving you inexhaustible pleasure, but you have to go and get it. But David, as he's speaking and saying, God, I want this, I want more of this, is reminded of the reason that sometimes he doesn't experience that which he knows is true. Look at verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 11. He then says, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me, nor the hand of the wicked drive me away. There the evildoer lies fallen and they are thrust down, unable to rise. Do you know there are two major hindrances to every one of us, the same two, from experiencing the inexhaustible pleasures of God? God's offering it. If we're not experiencing it, David prays that these two things would not be a part of his life. It is pride and sin. Look at what he says. He says, let not the foot of arrogance come upon me. You say, well, what is pride? Well, in this context, it's living self-sufficiently. It's living day-to-day without a recognition of God. It's coming here, hearing a sermon, and then walking out of here and just not giving God much thought till next Sunday. It is waking up in in the morning and instead of spending time with God because you know that if you walk out of the house, forget walking out of the house, you walk out of the room and see your family without being filled with the Holy Spirit, you're gonna say something really dumb. And you're gonna do something really dumb. And so you live with this awareness that if if, if God doesn't come and help me, if if I'm not walking with the Lord today, like if I'm not getting a little bit of the Lord, I'm gonna do some really dumb things. You see, that's that's pride. 
Pride allows us to just continue to function day by day without an awareness of a need for God. And what David knows is this, if he gets proud, if he gets self-sufficient, he's just gonna move on throughout life without coming to feast upon the Lord. And the result of that is he's not gonna find satisfaction in the Lord. And then he's gonna be drawn towards other things that satisfy him. And it's all gonna begin because the pride in his heart makes him think day by day he doesn't need the Lord. The reality is, if we're thinking about God correctly, the first thing we do when we get out of bed is fall directly to our knees and say, God, I can't make it a moment without you. And today, I want to feast. Today, I wanna know, would you show me that you're a satisfying reality? I'm just thinking about something right now that I think some of you need to hear. You've heard me say this before, but my testimony is being raised in a Christian home and knowing everything I could possibly know and learn in Sunday school. And coming as an 11th grade uh, student at a private Christian school, much like Prince in Atlanta, thinking, God, I know this to be true, but I don't feel it in my heart. And I want to want you, but I don't want you. Have you had that feeling? I want to want you. I want a new desire for you. So I begin to get on my knees and just pray that God would give me a desire. And I think there's some of you here who want to want God. You want to know God, but it's not there. Start with an honest prayer of God, I want to want you. And I assure you that is a prayer that God will answer. Because even your desire to desire him is something he's put in your heart. Because you don't have that without him. And over the next few months, it's amazing how God began to give me a new desire. As I began to read the word, it began to come alive and I began to get a hunger and a thirst for the Lord. And literally in that moment, the trajectory of my life began to change. Pride makes us self-sufficient and ignore God. And the next one is just sin and evil. He says, nor let the hand of the wicked drive me away. David knows this, that you cannot both drink from the pleasures of the world and drink from the pleasures of Christ at the same time. If you have sin in your heart, you cannot pursue the things of the Lord that we want to be clean, usable vessels to the Lord. That sin is my desire to satisfy myself or holiness is my desire to walk with the Lord knowing that ultimately he satisfies more. this just keeps coming back to me as I was reading the Proverbs this year. I've said this to you so many times that one of the things the book of Proverbs says over and over is this, is that when you choose to walk in sin, you always harm yourself. Can you just get that one thing in your head? Every time you choose to walk in sin, you harm yourself. Why? Because you're choosing something lesser instead of choosing something greater. Sky Pratt, missions pastor came to me after the service and he said, you know, Pastor Josh, this message is, this is like your heart message. This is like what you bleed. And I said to him, I just long for every single person to understand that there is nothing better in all of life than Jesus Christ. And I believe that if they'll get a little taste for him, they'll get really hungry for more of him and they'll want more and more and more. I just want you to get a taste of his goodness. So here's the truth from Psalm 36. There is inexhaustible pleasure found in an inexhaustible God. And here's your response. Get up in the morning and feast on him. Go after him. He will not disappoint. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.